It was mainly low-grade harassment, putting pens in my shirt pocket so they could get a quick rope while taking them out. It was so normal that thinking back, it, it seems mad. One of the main things he did was um, send me up to the uh, stock room, which was upstairs and had a key, and he would follow me after a few minutes or so, and he would shut the door and lock the door, lean against the door, and uh, he would grope me. And this happened on a regular basis. He used to basically just go up to girls in the office and kind of ping open their bra straps through the, through the T-shirt. He did it to me, and it was really embarrassing and horrible, and I, and I was just really shocked about it. Stomach-churning stuff. Testimony from friends and colleagues that wasn't hard to find, and it's happening right on our doorsteps and, of course, around the world. In today's podcast, brought to you by Lloyd's Register Foundation, we're going to be talking about safety of women in the workplace. The original discussion for this episode was recorded earlier in the year. Since then, the UK government has announced that it will make legislative changes relating to sexual harassment in the workplace. We contacted our panellists again to find out what these changes might mean for the UK and how effective they think they will be. Those responses are reflected towards the end of this episode. Last year, Lloyd's Register Foundation and Gallup staged their latest World Risk Poll, which threw up some shocking findings. Namely, that in some countries, 75% of female workers are concerned about violence and harassment in the workplace, whilst here in Britain, nearly two out of three young women have experienced sexual harassment at work. Campaigns like Me Too or Time's Up UK have sprung up from anger and frustration at the slow pace of change. But the dangers facing women at work are not only linked to sex. Many features and safety protocols of the workplace itself are designed around men, like machines, safety equipment, protective clothing, even hazard testing. In 2021, is that acceptable? And should it change? Bearing in mind a somewhat shocking statistic that men are actually 23 times more likely to die at work than women. So today we'll be unpacking some of the key findings in the World Risk Poll, all of which relate to the safety of women at work, and we'll establish what is being done and what should be done to improve women's working lives. And we have a stellar lineup joining me from many parts of the world. Halska Grasik is from the Occupational Safety and Health Team at the United Nations International Labour Organisation. Hilda Palmer was named Most Influential Person in Health and Safety for 2020 in a recent poll. And for over 30 years, Hilda has been campaigning for safer workplaces, especially for women. Jess Phillips is MP for Yardley in Birmingham, also Shadow Minister for Domestic Violence and Safeguarding. In 2018, she launched the hashtag NotTheJob campaign to demand zero tolerance for sexual harassment in the workplace. Alison McDermott is an independent strategic diversity and inclusion consultant. And last but by no means least, Sarah Cumbers. Sarah Cumbers is from Lloyd's Register Foundation, where she is Director of Evidence and Insight. Thank you all for joining me. Um, First of all, can I just get from each of you maybe an example of something maybe similar to what we've heard or something that illustrates the perhaps surprising perils faced by women in the workplace? Let's start with Hilda. I think I've heard very many of the sort of examples that we have just horrifyingly had played to us. 
and they never get stale because they should not be happening and they are absolutely unacceptable. Uh, we hear those sort of stories all the time and I think one of the most shocking things to me was in 2019 while speaking at a national stress conference safety reps from civil service unions were talking about rapes that occurred in their workplaces. Uh, one in two women uh, face sexual harassment at work and report it. 70% of LBGT uh, workers have reported sexual harassment at work. And in the latest TUC safety reps survey, harassment, including sexual harassment, is the second most serious concern after stress that is raised in workplaces. Thank you, Hilda. Um... Halska from the International Labour Organization. Yeah, I think one of the big issues here is that no matter what risk we're looking at at the workplace, whether that's ergonomic, physical, biological, chemical or psychosocial going down to violence and harassment, we see that women are really facing the greatest burdens. But first of all, we have to recognize that there's a continuing view that women's work is less hazardous than that of men's. And therefore, there's less training, there's less education, there's less awareness raising. Um, women are also less likely to be at the top of uh, chains of command or part of trade unions and therefore have a lower voice when it comes to expressing problems at the workplace. There's also matters of higher level of exposures for certain tasks and then, very importantly, uh, a greater burden on the health outcomes when we're looking at reproductive hazards and things like this. So it's really the full picture and we need to be looking at all of the different risks that women face at the workplace. Thank you. Jess Phillips, I'm sure you've encountered very many testimonies of this nature. Millions, it seems. More and more every day come into my inbox. Um, but, I mean, I've met women who've been raped at work um, and then silenced. I've met women who've been routinely sexually harassed and abused at work just to have very, very rich CEOs literally tell them that they can throw as much money as they like at these women to shut them up um, and brag about it and feel proud that they can silence people with 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 board members doing nothing about it signing off huge checks uh, to silence people and not even quibbling about it i've met victims of domestic violence where there is no protection for them in their workplace uh, either in legislation in the UK and globally. When we look at regulation and legislation, have conversations about women's safety, we rarely remember that women go to work. <laughs> it's as if women still only exist in the home and we are domestic goddesses, uh, which is nice uh, that people think of us that way. Um, but we seem, to, we seem to have this really 1950s ideals, and it wasn't even true in the 1950s, uh, that women don't go to work. And so we never think about how safety legislation and women's safety are the same thing. Alison, I can see you nodding extremely vigorously at all that. Well, yes, I, I agree and echo all of that. I think that almost where to start. I mean, one of the things I've observed from the work that I do is that women's voices has less credibility. So when women speak out often about the issues that they're experiencing in the workplace and they do so repeatedly, they're often heard or ignored. And yet sometimes when possibly a male ally, ally above that person will then pick up on the problem somehow and suddenly their voices are heard or the issues are taken. Something like two to three percent of internal grievances are upheld. 
And I think all organisations, particularly public sector organisations, should have to report on the amount of grievances that go through the organisation and the percentage of grievances that are upheld. That would drive quite a lot of attention and transparency on the issue. Sarah, I just wanted to, to, to give you a, a, a chance to come in. Obviously, the things we heard were anecdotal, although, as I said, they weren't hard to find. But what are the sort of stats telling you about this kind of thing? Well, the World Risk Poll tells us that there's a, a major issue. Um, violence and harassment is an issue in pretty much every country in the world for both men and women. Um, but shockingly, it's the gender gap that indicates that actually for many women at work, that, you know, it, it, it's, it's a really, really significant issue. I was quite surprised by the World Risk Poll data, although actually, if I really think about it, I don't know why I was surprised. You know, personally, in my second job, when I was in my mid-20s, you know, experienced a dinner with, you know, groping hands under the table. And, you know, at the time, I didn't do anything about it because, you know, these were senior people. This was a new role for me. Um, and so I don't know why I'm surprised by it, actually, but I think that's sort of gives you insight actually into the way women deal with these issues that it's it's felt to be something that actually shouldn't be talked about well at the risk of making some of the audience feel uncomfortable but i think that discomfort is justified in this case let's hear a few more of those testimonies a senior manager charmed and subtly bullied more junior female staff with lots of sexually charged banter and implied threats it was the time of laddish and very pub-based culture, lots of inappropriate touching, almost normal and not worth mentioning. Comments about clothing, body shape, touching was endemic, pats on the bum, etc., etc. None of what happened to me was really terrible. It was just endless groping banter, but it's the drip, drip of confidence-destroying, uncomfortable, undermining that has an effect. For those who had it worse, that must have affected careers and lives. What shocks me most now is that none of us, we discussed it among ourselves, the girls, but it was just like, oh, you know, none of us reported it. No, nobody felt that we could report it. And I, I guess part of us didn't want to get him into trouble, but, but partly I, I don't think, I mean, our, our boss was male, um, all the kind of senior management were male. I think we probably didn't want to make a fuss. And, and nobody confronted him either about it. I, I just walked away embarrassed and, and everybody laughed about it. And if you, I mean, I remember feeling that if I didn't kind of laugh it off, then people would just think I had no sense of humour and I was being, you know, a bit precious about it or something. It's not just what happens. It's how it makes you feel about yourself when you are thinking about what you did when that happened. And if you feel like you could have done more or you should have done more or you should have done something differently, then it's not just about the experience, it's about how it changes your view of yourself. One of the common threads coming out of that was a lot of the people sort of said, well, I was disgusted or really uncomfortable or outraged, but I didn't really know what to do. In 2021, Hilda, what should they do? It's actually really difficult. Um, there's really no clear law protecting workers, women workers at work. 
there, it does come under lots of laws, the Equality Act, there's a harassment law, there's the Employment Rights Act and there's Health and Safety at Work law. But law is absolutely useless without enforcement and there's absolutely no enforcement of this. And if you ask the HSE if they're responsible for sexual harassment at work and trying to prevent it and they'll say no, the government has made the Equality and Human Rights Commission responsible and they have no powers to investigate, inspect or prosecute. So essentially, there is nobody doing this. So it's very, very hard for workers to know who to report to, who to call on. Um, you can't really call the police in. The police won't be very interested in whatever's going on at work. So essentially, it's a huge crime that's affecting huge numbers of women, but there is absolutely no official sort of recourse. Obviously, if you're in a trade union, you can talk to your trade union and they are more likely to take action. And certainly from the Hazards Campaign and trade union point of view, we insist that this is a type of violence at work, which the HSE should enforce. And it's also about prevention and that under the Health and Safety at Work Act, employers are under a duty to provide a workplace free from harm. And that includes violence and sexual harassment. Halska Grace, you're very keen to come in on this. I was keen because there's something that the ILO has uh, recently done. And the ILO in 2019 um, yeah. developed the first violence and harassment convention for the world of work. And this is really groundbreaking because this is the first time that the issue of violence and harassment within the world of work has been approached through a legal framework. Um, and it is very unique in that it covers all types of violence and harassment, whether it's physical, sexual, psychosocial. Um, and what's also essential here is that it shifts the blame and the burden of proof away from the victim and recognizes that, in fact, there is an institution where this took place. And therefore, just like that institution, the world of work is responsible for protecting us from things like asbestos or heavy metals or air pollution. It's also responsible for protecting us from things like violence and harassment. And so this was really a monumental step forward. This represents the first international legal framework that countries can adopt and implement. Um, but what I completely agree that enforcement is key. So after we ratify, after we implement this convention, we need strong occupational safety and health mechanisms like responsible labor inspection mechanisms, data collection. We need all of these systems in place. But at least we have the legal start. Sarah Cumbers, I just want to get back to you and talk about what you actually discovered in the World Risk Poll. Give me some of those statistics that were particularly pertinent. Um, I think one of the most shocking statistics uh, for me came out of Australia, uh, where we found that there was a, a significant gender gap with, I think, over 24% of women in Australia experiencing violence and harassment at work, compared to around 11 or 12% of men. And whereas with many of the risks that we looked at in the World Risk Poll, we found it was low-income countries where the experience was highest, with violence and harassment, of course, that you know, the, the, it, we see that actually there's, there's still a major risk in high-income countries as well. Um, and you really would expect, as you've already said, Tom, in 2021, that this wouldn't be happening. And also, I think the shocking fact that this isn't a mistake or an error. This is a human acting against uh, another human in a place where they should be safe. Jess Phillips, you're keen to come in? 
Yeah, I mean, just to say that, I mean, in the United Kingdom, the, the very much the weight of getting any action on this falls entirely at the feet of the victim, um, who will almost certainly have to give up their job um, in order to take any sort of legal action. And even then, the, the law isn't really on your side. Um, and most people give up uh, throughout that process, because why would you do that? There is very, very, very little protection in the United Kingdom currently against sexual harassment and violence at work. Um, I asked the health and safety executive about it when we did an inquiry in Parliament and they basically just said that oh, that's not our responsibility. And I asked them specifically about women suffering violence uh, from their partners and how at work we needed to be protected from that because it is the biggest killer of women in the workplace um, and they said that's not our responsibility to which I said so you're telling me that if I was hit by a van that would be you but not if I was hit by a man and they said yes. There, there is absolutely a link here um, with with broader health and safety, um, you know, yes, you know, the impact here on the individual is, is paramount, but there's also an impact on wider employees within an organisation, but also the community at large when you're talking about high risk industries, because at the end of the day, if you haven't got the right safety culture, if people don't feel that they can speak out about these issues, they won't be speaking out about other issues either and we know that that's a really important leading indicator of safety that in in, in organizations where they have a strong culture where people can feel they, they they speak they can speak out that means that actually they have better safety outcomes so there's absolutely a link here between violence and harassment in the workplace and safety outcomes and you know if the impact on the individual wasn't enough that's a really you know really important reason why we need action on this i want to play you a short interview we recorded with elizabeth broderick Elizabeth Broderick is a lawyer and chair rapporteur of the United Nations Working Group on Discrimination Against Women and Girls. She founded and convenes the Male Champions for Change strategy, activating influential men to take action on gender equality. It is the middle of the night of Australia when we are recording this, so to spare her having to get up, we recorded a little chat with her earlier. The problem is ubiquitous. The fact is that women are very reluctant to speak about it and they're reluctant to speak about it because they risk losing their jobs, they risk being ridiculed, uh, they risk smear campaigns or what I call doxing, having their personal details released onto the internet. There's so many ways that women can be silenced and stigmatised if they dare speak out and that's one of the reasons you won't hear about it. And the fact is a huge power asymmetry operates in most workplaces and pretty much most workplaces across the world you'll see men dominate in the most powerful leadership positions and if there are women in the organisation they'll be in more junior or less powerful roles and that power imbalance, that gender inequality is one of the causes and indeed the consequence of violence and harassment at work. Sexual harassment or violence doesn't jump out of nowhere. It comes in cultures which allow demeaning attitudes about women, which allow insults masquerading as jokes, which allows the objectification of women, uh, sexualised work environments, which include pornography, sexting. So they're all examples of 
environments where sexual harassment is much more likely to occur, but at the heart of sexual harassment is a power imbalance um, between men and women. And that is about men in powerful roles and women in much less powerful roles. Having said that, sexual harassment can come from a work colleague who's at the same level. I mean, it can potentially even come from someone who's reporting to you. But most of the countries that are collecting strong data would have you know, that power imbalance as core to most examples of sexual harassment and violence. That was lawyer and gender equality campaigner Elizabeth Broderick. So who wants to pick up on that? Yeah, Alison McDermott. There is an absolute lack of support for people who are being victimised, but also for those who speak out on behalf of those who are being victimised as well. So the problem is truly systemic. Jess Phillips, is there any suggestion that, albeit too slowly, we are going in the right direction? I ask this because we are seeing more women in more senior positions in companies. Some of the anecdotes we heard from earlier clearly referred to considerable times past and said things like, I'm amazed, you know, I wouldn't have done this today. Um, Albeit we're not in the right place, are there some good examples or good practices or changes we can take some hope from? There are individual places that have better policies and better procedures and and a more robust way of dealing with this. There are individual examples of good organisations doing a good job without question. Overall, um, legislatively, no. And the Me Too movement didn't then lead to a single change for safety in the workplace in the United Kingdom. There was lots and lots of proposals made, such as making it a statutory duty to prevent sexual harassment, which would mean that if an organisation hadn't prevented it, then it would be easier to take a claim against uh, an employer and an organisation. That was roundly rejected, I'm afraid to say. And so there's a tiny fraction of light beaching around an enormous cloud uh, with regard to domestic violence policy in uh, employment but very very small steps for example in the next few weeks when the legislation finally passes orders like restraining orders would cover you at work whereas before they didn't any of you can come back onto this but i'm going to be straight with you in my working life i haven't personally come across or heard about a lot of this now is this because i am lucky blind male or all three of those all three yeah, all three. Would you add naive to the list? Probably. Probably. <laughs> I'm a 69-year-old woman and I have experienced sexual harassment from the age of eight in innumerable guises at work, in the environment, everywhere. And everybody else on this call will know this. And it, I've internalised and normalised most of it and mm. couldn't even begin to regurgitate it. We all know this. It's huge. It's absolutely massive. Um, you know, we know half of women at work, according to the TUC surveys, are, have experienced this. And there is almost nothing being done. I think it's wonderful what Halska is saying. Uh, you know, the ILO Convention 190 on, on violence and harassment and gender, gendered violence. It's really important that this is ratified and that action is taken. But in this country at the moment, it's a free for all in terms of sexual harassment. So I, I think things have got worse and I'm absolutely furious. 
the threats facing women at the workplace are not li- limited to the extraordinary litany of things we've just heard. It's also about health and safety in, in, in a broader sense. And whilst we're currently in a pandemic, there is a kind of neat link that can be made here. That a large proportion of the COVID-19 frontline responders, they were women or still are women, in fact, and in desperate need of working PPE that actually fitted them. But have a listen to this. This is Agarvan Sales. She is a doctor, and this is what she tweeted last year. Here I am with all my PPE on my head. Uh, I just came out of the unit, so I took off my gown and gloves. But um, you see that these goggles are a little big on my face. I've got my N95 under here. Um, And this is a new mask, by the way. I just put it on for the sake of this video, but um, my head is small. (laughs) This is a lot of equipment on my face. (laughs) Anyway, I'll check back more later. And there is a book called Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez, who sadly was not available to join the panel today. She also touches on this. Even a quick read of the back cover. In particular, if you're a man, you might be surprised by what you find. She claims that if you're a woman, your phone is too big for your hand. If you're a woman, your doctor prescribes a drug that is probably wrong for your body. And if you're a woman in a car accident, you're 47% more likely to be seriously injured. Um, Hilda Palmer, you've, you've worked in this world for a long time. Describe how we've got to the... I find some of these things just amazing, really. <laughs> Yes, they are absolutely amazing. And it's because of everything that everybody's been saying about the power relationship and the culture and misogyny and the fact that the default worker is taken to be male and women are not the default male. You know, we're generally smaller. We have a lifetime of hormonal changes. We detox in a different way. We respond to chemicals in a different way. You know, uh, we have our eggs present when we're born and exposed throughout our lives. We have reproductive uh, issues, all these sorts of things. And we're generally smaller than men. And almost everything at work from PPE, as we as we well know from the COVID crisis, but uh, riot gear, uh, chairs, workstations, tools, absolutely everything is made for the default man. Uh, th- those, those housekeeping trolleys that you see in hotels that the workers carry everything around, they're generally made for a Caucasian man who never does a job like that. Then they're, They don't fit most Caucasian women, but they certainly don't fit people of different ethnicity who usually end up doing those sorts of jobs and therefore are more likely to get to develop terrible musculoskeletal disorders. It's a really, really big problem and it's one that should be solved by you know, accepting the fact that women are workers as well and making sex and gendered assumptions as Halska was saying earlier about women's work generally being lighter, easier, less risky, all that sort of stuff which isn't really true when you break it down and Karen Messing in One-Eyed Science revealed all this a very long time ago. That has to become central. That has to become central to health and safety at work. I heard even that crash test dummies are always male and when it comes to women they just use a 12-year-old boy as the analogue. Women are too difficult. All this work on mus- on manual handling is uh, assumes that women don't have any breasts, so it's all ridiculous. But that does bring me on to an interesting point, which I did raise at the beginning, and I'm going to come to Sarah on this. The figures are that men are 23 times more likely to be killed at work than women. Now, is that because generally men do jobs that are hazardous? Do you know why? Certainly, the World Risk Poll shows that um, a greater number of men work in hazardous industries, yes. Um, but at the end of the day, you also have women working in those industries too. And I want to come on to that. Sorry, Halska Gracia, you wanted to come in there. 
It's important to note that also when it comes to reporting, women are less likely to report incidents at the workplace. And so these figures are very important, but sometimes they don't unleash the full picture of the hazards that women face. Just to add to that, the murders that I'm talking about wouldn't have been considered to be deaths in the workplace, caused by the workplace. They would have been considered to be domestic homicides, so they wouldn't be counted. So the violence that women suffer at work, both physical and mental, won't be being counted. Alison, you wanted to come in, yeah? Can I give a really quick example, which is, you know, it's another kind of... Uh, trauma which is hidden. About five years ago I was running some focus groups with women in a big blue chip organisation at a senior level and I did a group with men and a group with women and I'd asked them in advance to see if they'd be willing to declare if they were taking any antidepressants. 85% of the women were on antidepressants, 10% of the men were on antidepressants. Now I know it's a small group so it was about 20 in each group but it was still quite significant and I've continued to ask those kind of questions and there's a lot of women self-medicating to get through the world of work. Part of the reason I mentioned that statistic a moment ago is presumably as we see greater equality in the workplace and more women move into more hazardous areas, we're going to need to really make sure we've got this design for safety, PPE and all those things working for women, aren't we? I don't think we need to worry about it too quickly. You know, women in construction, for example, it's something like 2%. It's the trickle-down economics of uh, of uh, gender equality and that it trickles incredibly slowly. It wouldn't fill an egg cup, let alone a bath, very fast. But, yeah, absolutely, for those few women that make it through into the more high-paid risky work, we definitely need to look at making sure that the stuff fits them. I think it was today the armed forces announced that they were going to make uniforms that weren't just men's uniforms for women. How many years have women been in the armed forces? Quite a long time, I'd wager. Can I just add a point about counting? It's really important. The issue about men tending to do the more hazardous work and so therefore more likely to be killed in incidents at work is another example of the bias in the way we actually record these statistics. The fact is that more people are harmed by illnesses at work and women are much more likely to be harmed in those sort of ways. So even the way we count the statistics and the HSE is, you know, really sex blind and is not actually counting all the workers who are killed. You know, about 1,500 workers are killed in work-related incidents every year, but well over 50,000 die from work-related illnesses. And so that way of looking at work and its hazards from just the what people who die in incidents is another example of sex and gender bias. So what about solutions to this problem? It's clear from the panel that both statistics and personal testimonies exist to highlight the current situation. So what can be done? Elizabeth Broderick, the Australian lawyer and UN campaigner we heard from earlier, shared some of the tactics adopted in Australia – it all begins with how we frame the workplace harassment. In the past, those issues of sexual harassment might have been dealt with as a workplace grievance. That's no longer the case. These are now leadership issues for the board and the CEO of the organisation. They're attached to the workplace health and safety agenda, which means that serial perpetrators of this behaviour are now workplace hazards, and it's incumbent on everyone in the workplace to do something about a workplace hazard. One of the main areas that has shifted is no longer non-disclosure agreements. What we now have is for the individual who's a victim of a sexual harassment or violence, her ability to tell her own story in her own words at a time of her choosing is to be preserved. 
Uh, we need good education in schools about gender equality, about the equal place of boys and girls and men and women in our society. And for me, that starts in the family. You know, whether or not you believe fundamentally in gender equality, those attitudes are instilled in you right from probably about the age of three. The role of a parent is so very important because what you model as a couple, whether it's, you know, same sex or um, opposite sex, your children will take into their adult life. So the expectations of your daughters, the attitudes of your sons. So that's absolutely where it starts. Um, And I, I think often that is missing from the conversation. But for me, I believe that human rights starts at home. It starts right back in the family. Well, let's get some ideas in this solution space. Uh, Jess Phillips, I'm quite sure you could, you could write a book on this, but give me some of your, your, your headline solutions to try and turn this super tanker around. I think that transparency is really key. So uh, I want it reported in businesses when they've, they've, they've given payouts for people for leaving their jobs, whether that's for maternity or for harassment. I think they should have to list that and that would end it. So transparency is really key, but there needs to be a proper legislative change that, that puts it on the employer not the employee and makes it a statutory duty to protect not just react and and is it possible to say in a kind of sentence what that law would outlaw in effect what it would say it would outlaw sexual harassment and abuse in the workplace Um, and what it would mean was that an employee could take action against their employer if they had failed to protect Uh, they had failed to put in place Uh, action to stop sexual harassment this isn't just about waiting for it to happen and dealing with it properly what are they doing to stop it from happening in the first place are they you know is there mandatory training on gendered roles and and respect Uh, employer would have to prove that they've done everything to prevent it and most don't do anything yeah it's interesting it's just like the health and safety space you need to be proactive with those things and you need to be proactive in this thanks very much uh, hilda collective action has got to be about changing the culture you know right from birth up through schools into the workplace and uh, trying to you know combat misogyny and trying to break down some of these power relationships but obviously there's got to be a very specific law which makes it the employer's duty to prevent sexual harassment in the workplace which then gives trade unions powers to actually follow that up, hold them to account, make them develop proper policies to prevent it, training to prevent proper recording and supporting of people who are suffering, all that sort of thing. And there has to be, you know, a proper code of conduct that set, lays that out and real enforcement by the HSE, which has to be properly funded to actually do this. And for any individual woman, join a union, be part of something collective where you can actually work for a better working environment and you'll have some support if anything goes wrong. Alison, something I wanted to put to you, I mean, I'm sure you've got your own ideas for solutions, but are we likely to see some of this being improved by, as I mentioned earlier, more women getting to more senior positions in companies? Is that going to be relevant at all to solving these issues? I think that's going to take a long time to shift the dial. So we need to take action now. And that's, again, putting the onus on women to sort this out so women in charge can now sort this out whereas actually it's not women's responsibility to sort this out as, as you know as others have said it's the organize it's the organization's responsibility it's the government's responsibility to make sure that these are safe uh productive workplaces which as you've heard today so many people have said that is not the case and I think transparency is really important and I think metrics are really important you know you care about what you measure 
and you measure what you care about. Like, where are the metrics that allow us to determine where an organisation is in this space? There are none. Well, give me an example of what you'd like to see then as a metric. Oh, well, as I mentioned earlier on, I would like to see a metric that says, what is their attrition rate for women? published that would be a really simple measure the amount of money that's been spent like Jess talked about around paying people off having to disclose that so it's no longer swept under the carpet and that it becomes much more transparent and much more measurable because at the moment I do approve and I do agree with the need for more legislation but actually it is culture it is metrics it is transparency it's to a certain extent naming and shaming companies who are really bad in this space that's also going to make a difference as well. Hauska Grasik. I think what we need are inclusive, integrated and gender responsive approaches. And this needs to be done through legal frameworks. So this needs to come at the national level, but it also needs to trickle down to the workplace level where we can implement uh, comprehensive occupational safety and health risk assessments that take a broader approach to understanding all of the risks that are present at the workplace. It doesn't make sense to focus only on one risk and not look at things like violence and harassment. And what's very important when it comes to risk assessments is that they warn you of the risks before they can incur the harm. And this is very important in regards to prevention because once the harm has happened, you cannot go back. The damage has been done. And for this reason, we need preventative actions as the most important and fundamental mechanisms at the workplace level. Um, I also want to bring attention to the importance of having a tripartite mechanism for negotiation. So we've talked about trade unions, work, employers, organizations, and the government, and the ILO supports this open dialogue between these three groups in order to make sure that any action that it's taken is validated by all three groups and is accepted and therefore more likely to succeed. Sarah Cumbers, you're kind of in effect convening this uh, this debate, this organization through uh, Lloyd's Register Foundation. What do you take away from this? Maybe some some solutions that can be worked on by business women and men who are listening to this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the start of it is the ILO's convention, 190, launched last year, um, put pressure um, on your um, on your organisation to put pressure on your government to ratify. You know, it's a really simple step that organisations, you know, can take to, to show at a very high profile level that actually they're taking this seriously. Um, I mean, I support everything that's been said about, about legislation, but I also wonder if if actually you know if the people that are listening to to this podcast actually particularly the men are thinking well what can i do about this as an individual we can all take responsibility for this culture change starts at home and it starts with calling out behavior that you that it that doesn't feel right not going with the crowd and and and, and supporting individuals you know whether you're male whether you're female you see something that isn't right go and you know talk to the individual be brave about it and and put it out there have the conversation because transparency is also going to be really important in helping us to overcome this. Considering this as a safety issue at work, I find quite instructive because like it, or I have to confess, sometimes I don't like it, health and safety culture has changed the way I work, has changed our workplaces uh, to an enormous degree in the last 20 years. And maybe it does need to be considered in that way. It becomes part of the structure and the atmosphere in which we work. Have I got the kind of right idea of something that could help that? Clearly, human rights are workers' rights and workers' rights are human rights. And therefore, at the workplace, we should be protected and ensure that our safety and health are well considered. Uh, But there's also a huge business case for protecting the safety and health of workers and looking at violence and harassment because workers that feel safe when they come into the workplace 
are much more likely to be more productive, less likely to have absenteeism, presenteeism issues. And so there's not just the human rights case, but really a clear business case. Do big companies or should big companies have codes of conduct in this space? Some of them do, but they don't enact them. So people say they meet with a tone deaf response from every senior official. So you can have all the best legislation in the world, but if there's no teeth behind it and there's no financial support, then that legislation becomes pretty meaningless. I would rather enforce the legislation we've got than actually spend more time on new legislation unless that new legislation is backed up by funding and by support because women will quickly learn there's no point accessing the so-called legislation if it leaves them feeling more victimised. I think that's why we need to pursue it in the workplace as a health and safety issue. And we can do that without changing the legislation because the, the duty on employers is to provide a workplace safe, free from risks to the safety, the health and the welfare of workers. Since we recorded this conversation, the UK government has conducted a consultation resulting in some legislative changes affecting how employers deal with sexual harassment in the workplace. In July 2021, the government announced they would legislate to introduce a duty on employers to take reasonable steps to prevent sexual harassment, create explicit protections from harassment by third parties and support the Equality and Human Rights Commission to produce a statutory code of practice, among other things. These changes are yet to come into force. But I want to ask our panellists what they think of the changes and whether or not they go far enough. Hilda? We don't know if they will go far enough. The devil is in the detail. We need to see the legislation and the enforcement powers and the funding for it. This cannot be done on existing resources. Jess? Something that we have been calling for for a long time is that there needs to be a duty on the employer to ensure that they have created a safe working environment and um, that they have to do as much as possible to prevent sexual harassment. And should the employer not do that, if an incident happens uh, in a workplace, uh, an employee, a, a victim in this instance, currently would be able to take action against just the the person who had done that to them. And as we've seen, that action is often very unsuccessful with businesses um, and employers across the country failing in this duty largely. Now an employee would have would be able to take action against their employer for not seeking to prevent it if they hadn't followed the, the government guidance and the, the equality and human rights guidance. Um, that will be set out. Now, none of that is, in fact, the case yet, um, but the government have said, as part of the Violence Against Women and Girls strategy, that they are going to legislate to make employers have a duty to prevent, and that is something that we have called for for a long time. And so I'm very, very pleased that years of campaigning by Thousands of women, many victims came forward um, and spoke at events in Parliament um, and lobbied their MPs and worked with us to ensure that finally we will start to see some of these changes. Um, and so that that is the the landscape. But, you know, 
I very much doubt that I will see any of these changes in a courtroom with a case being able to be taken with that legislation before the end of this parliament. So around four or five years, I imagine we will start to see the benefits of this. But I guess that is the law. It takes a long time. Hilda? It's a recognition of the seriousness of sexual harassment at work as a crime. And it's also an overwhelming victory for women who have bravely spoken out, trade unions and other feminist groups that have campaigned for this. Fact is, nobody should go to work and have anybody do anything to their body or say anything about them. It, it should be just so culturally unacceptable that it should never happen. Well, thank you very much indeed to the panel, to Jess Phillips, to Sarah Cumbers, to Hilda Palmer, Alison McDermott and Halska Grasik. And to all of those voices we heard in this programme, let's try and make a difference so that future generations do not suffer in the same ways and our workplaces become welcoming and safe for all. Thank you. If you've been affected by the issues covered in this podcast, you can contact the Employers Initiative on Domestic Abuse. You can find them online at eida.org.uk.